you'll remain standing for the reading of God's Word as it comes to us from a new book, a book that we are beginning this morning. We are excited to start the book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles. You can find that in your Bible that you brought with you or the Pew Bible in front of you, but you want to have your Bible open this morning to see these things to be truly the Word of God. Acts chapter 1, the first four verses. In the first book, O Theopolis, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach, till the day when he was taken up, after he had given commandments through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his sufferings by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Amen. You may be seated. Well, Pastor Myers and I have recently begun a new ministry, new to us at least. We are now regular preachers, not just on Sunday, but on Wednesday, and not just Wednesday night. But Wednesday morning at the chapel for our Christian school here at the church, we are regular chapel speakers and teachers and preachers. And I appreciate your prayers for this time because if you have ever taught children, then you know that this is a rough crowd. But as one of my seminary professors once said, if you can't preach the gospel to children and make it simple enough for them to understand, then you can't preach, and you shouldn't preach. And so if Danny or myself resign in the next couple months, this is why. We'll run out of town by first graders. No, it's a joy to preach and teach to men and women, boys and girls. More opportunities, the better. And on the very first week of school, now a few weeks ago, was the very first chapel Using the book of Mark, which we are going through this year in chapel, we talked about beginnings. For the kids, obviously, the beginning of school, the beginning of a new grade. For some, the beginning of a new school altogether. And with beginnings, there is a mixture of excitement and fear. And that's something that I think all of us can relate to, no matter the age. Could be a new career. Could be a new dating relationship or marriage or kids or more kids or being empty nesters or being a widow. With all beginnings come anticipation as well as anxiety. Each season of life brings joy and sorrows. And so, too, with the start of the new school year comes the functional. New year of activities and plans for yourself as a family, as well as for us as a church, as we begin to resume our normal schedule, our normal routine. In a way, you could say it's a, a new beginning, a new start. And so the question should be asked uh, are we excited or are we scared? And my answer would be yes. And that's what I told the children. That's as we begin, both exciting and it's a little bit scary. 
But you know what? Jesus knew exactly what that feels like, what new beginnings are like. As he began his ministry, there was eagerness, no doubt, to do the work of his father, but yet there was that burden of knowing where that was heading, that he was heading to the cross, that he was going to give his life as a ransom for many, and yet he was willing. So too, as we come to a new book of the Bible this morning, we see a new beginning. Christ has done his redeeming work. He is risen and he is about to ascend into heaven and the disciples, soon to be apostles, are going to now do the work that Christ has called them to do, but now without Jesus, at least without him physically at their side to instruct them and to teach them and to guide them. Was there excitement? Was there fear? You better believe it. And that is still true for all of us as we journey on in this faith, as we go about what the Lord calls us to. We don't know all that will happen, all that life will entail, but the Lord doesn't ask us to, does he? Rather, he calls us to live by faith and to live faithfully to what he calls us to do. Sometimes that means putting one foot in front of the other and faithfully following him. That's our call, isn't it? Individually and as a church. And I think this book helps us to do exactly that. And this morning we want to preview this book as a whole, as well as dive into the first few verses. And so I want to look this morning at the background, the purpose, and the lessons of this book. First, the the background. As we begin, I don't want to assume that you know why we do what we do. Why are we taking this book of the Bible and going through it verse by verse, chapter by chapter, which is our practice here? Some might even say, well, that's a little too scripted, a little too dictated, maybe even a little too rote. Why not be a little bit more impromptu or or led by inspiration? What is laid on your heart this week, Pastor? That seems to be more spirit-led, the thought might be. But we firmly believe that what you need, what I need, is the full diet of God's word. You don't need just a word from God or even a word about God. No, you need the word of God, the full and final word of God. You don't need a different word or a new word or a fresh word. You need the inspired word, the authoritative word. You need the infallible word. You need the sufficient word of God. And that is only found in the Holy Scriptures, the 66 books that encompass the Old and New Testament and nowhere else. And so we need not search for it elsewhere. It is right here before us. God has given it to us as a wonderful gift, and we need all of it, not just pieces and parts of it. We need all Scripture because all Scripture is useful. It's not useful for what we want it to be useful for. No, it's useful for, as Paul puts it, teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, that the man and woman of God would be complete, that they would be mature, equipped for every 
good work. And so the goal is for you to be complete, to to be mature. That happens through the Word of God being preached and teached and proclaimed and applied to your hearts and to your minds. And so we need to preach it, we need to teach it, you need to receive it, and even more importantly, you need to apply it to your hearts so that we would be mature in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is our method. I remember shortly after taking the call to come to this church, I was asked by someone, what is, what is your plan? What's, what's your strategy? What's your tactic for this new church? And I told them, I'm going to preach, I'm going to pray, I'm going to shepherd and love people. And I remember this person looking at me like I was a Neanderthal from the dark ages, because surely that was not the strategy of the latest church growth book or magazine. And yet after almost six years, I can unequivocally say that the strategy has not changed, not because we are naive but because we fully believe and are convinced that God is pleased to use this method. Not only pleased, but promises to do so. And we need to be faithful to it. And so we need to trust the process, trust the method. Yes, it may be foolishness, but hasn't it always? Yes. And what I think we'll see through this book is that God, through Christ grew his church numerically and spiritually. And it needs to be both, not one or the other. And that happens through the spirit and truth as we will plainly see. And that is what the Father is seeking. Remember when Jesus said that to the Samaritan woman. And so we must be spirit-led through the truth of his word. And so it's our pleasure to do that book by book. Well, as we dive into this book, we need to ask the question, who is the author of it? Well, we know that this book was written by Luke. Who is Luke, you ask? Well, he was a doctor. He was a physician. Paul calls him the beloved physician in Colossians and a fellow worker in Philemon. And in fact, as he, Paul, penned his final epistle, 2 Timothy, he wrote, Luke alone is with me. Probably written just days before his death. And so we could say Luke was a a faithful companion of the apostles, specifically the apostle Paul, and the work of the ministry is specifically to the Gentiles. But even more than that, Luke was a historian, and a very good one at that. In fact, in Luke chapter 1, we read that he wrote, it seemed good to me, that is Luke, having followed all things closely for some time to compile an account. And he goes on to say not just any account, but an orderly account. And that is exactly what he did. And he did it in beautiful prose. Luke's Greek is unparalleled in the New Testament. And so God was pleased not only to have Luke pen one book, but two books, the Gospel of Luke and then the Acts of the Apostle, and to have both of these be include in, included in Holy Scripture. And those two books, here's a, a bit of 
Bible trivia for you to amaze your, your friends and coworkers this week. Those two books make up a quarter of the New Testament and the greatest portion of it by any one author. In other words, there's more holy and inspired words written by Luke than any of the disciples, more than Matthew, more than Peter, more than John, surprisingly more than Paul. In fact, Luke was used more than any other biblical author other than Moses and Ezra. And yet he was a Gentile, a Gentile used by God in a mighty way. And his words are inspired by the Holy Spirit. What do we mean by that? Well, it means that they were written by his hand, with his mind, and having his characteristics, and his education, and his style, but all underneath the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit who illumined his mind and suppressed his sinfulness. That's what we mean by inspiration. So much so that we can say that the words of Luke are the words of God, authoritative, trustworthy, and free from error. And they should be received that way. And so you, dear believer, can rely upon them. You can bank your full trust in them, your soul's eternal destination upon the truth that are conveyed in this book to the very salvation of your very soul. That's the kind of word that God used with the likes of Luke. Luke wrote this book to be a history. We see that he wrote it to the most excellent Theophilus who he mentions both in Luke and at the very beginning of our passage this morning, who is probably seemingly a high uh, Greek official. And obviously Luke's intention was that his words would be used far beyond just for Theopolis. And obviously that was God's intention. It was to be used as a history of Christ's work. And as a history, it's to be interpreted as such to be interpreted as a historical narrative. Not a myth, not a fable, not an allegory, not even revisionist history, not hagiography, just simple, true, historical fact of real people, real places. You can map it. You can use your, your maps in the back of your Bible with this book especially and will encourage you even to do so. And so just like any historical narrative, there are truths and principles that apply to us. Yet we need to be reminded that this book was written in a specific time and place. And therefore, there's not necessarily a one-for-one -one correlation. What do I mean by that? Well, we need to make a distinction between what is descriptive and what is prescriptive. Let me give you an example. We'll read in Acts chapter 9 of Paul's Damascus Road conversion. That is the description of the then Saul's experience of coming to the Lord Jesus Christ. That is not prescriptive of all conversions. In other words, not all of us have to have this radical face-to-face -face with Jesus conversion in order to be converted. That's not what we're saying. That's not what that is included in the Bible for. 
And so that is somewhat obvious, but there are other things in this book that we will have challenges to, to understanding and, and have challenged the church, mainly in regard to, to charismatic gifts. That we need to parse the, the best way that we can as we go through. And so I appreciate your, your prayers for myself and Pastor Myers as we rightly divide the Word of God. Well, second then, what is the, the purpose? I want you to understand as you go through this book, to have a, a clear focus of the, the purpose of this book. So as you, you see it, you go, oh yeah, that's right. These are the things that we need to take away with. This is the, the things that Luke is trying to convey to us. And the first thing, the very first thing that we must not miss is the centrality of the Lord Jesus Christ. You might say, well, hold on, Pastor. The centrality of the, the Lord Jesus Christ doesn't, doesn't acts begin with the ascension of Jesus into to heaven? That means he's not there. So how can he be the central figure? Well, I tell you that he is. That's the whole point of Luke, that he is there. That Jesus' work is going on and in fact is going on in greater measure. Isn't that what Jesus said in Luke chapter 14, verse 12? Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these he will do, because I am going on to the Father. The book of Acts is a part of the greater works of Jesus. So he remains the, the central figure. Therefore, we should not be surprised that in the preaching and the teaching and the ministry of the apostles that the Lord Jesus Christ is the focus, that he is the one that is put forth as the way and the truth and the life, just as he said that he was, and that there is no other ways to the Father except through him. Peter will say in Acts chapter for there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus is that name by which we must be saved. That Jesus is very much alive. And in fact, that's what Luke says, doesn't he? That he presented himself, verse 3, alive to them by many Proofs for those 40 days after his resurrection before ascending into the to, to heaven. In other words, Jesus is alive. He is saving. He is redeeming uh, people for himself. And so that is the consistent message, the purpose of this book. Luke's intention is to show that this is the continuation of Jesus' work. It's the different side of the, the same coin. Luke the gospel of Luke would be one side. The, the acts of the apostle would be the other. And so this book could very much be called the continuing work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Second purpose I want you to see as we begin is the essential work of the Holy Spirit. It's often been said that the Holy Spirit is the forgotten and neglected person of the Trinity. But that's not true if you properly study the book of Acts, he's seen directly and indirectly on every page and in every chapter. That he is not just central, but 
absolutely essential to the work of the church. We will see this throughout. We'll see it even as we read this morning in the opening verses, verse 2, where it talks about that Jesus gave commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles. And then at the end of the, the, the passage that John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. The promise of God is that as Jesus ascended, he would give the, the gift of the Holy Spirit, that they would not be left, that they would not be abandoned like orphans, but the Holy Spirit would be with them. And that is exactly what we'll see in Acts chapter 2, the, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. That's still true of every believer today, that we are filled, we are and dwelt by God through the Holy Spirit. That is God doing his work in us and through us. Therefore, we too are a part of that work. As Philippians 2 says, it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So much so that we can now say that we are the dwelling place of God, the temple of the Holy Spirit. And therefore, we are completely and utterly dependent upon the Spirit. This book should have us grow in that knowledge and that understanding and that dependency upon the Holy Spirit. So much so that after this book, they should call us Smyrna Pentecostal Presbyterian Church. Just without the wackiness. Let no one say that we as Presbyterians do not believe in the Holy Spirit. No, we must not be neglected. In our theology, in our thoughts, in our prayers, in our need for him. Proper pneumatology, spirit theology is central to this book and to the work of Christ. In fact, this book should be called properly the, the acts of the Holy Spirit through the apostles and through his church. And that leads us to our, our third purpose, the indispensable need of the church. And really, this is just a carryover of what we saw in the book of Nehemiah. That we see that the church is the structure that holds it all together, that the church is essential to kingdom advancement. We see it in, in chapter 1 and in chapter 2 and in chapter 3, every chapter of the book of Acts, that the church is the vehicle by which the kingdom of God expands. And so this modern idea that the church is nice but not needed or not necessary or it was of a bygone error is utterly foreign to the book of Acts. In fact, you can go as far as to say that the work and redemption of Jesus and the giving of the Holy Spirit was for the express purpose of building and establishing the church, a redeemed humanity, a, a new Israel, a people of his own choosing to give glory and praise to our great and almighty God. If you need a restored vision of the church and its purpose, 
This book ought to do it for you. If not, you're, you're either asleep or not paying attention. The book of Acts will help us to, to be churchmen and, and churchwomen, understanding its, its vision and its, and its mission. Again, this book makes that absolutely clear, the, the methods by which the mission of this church is to be accomplished. If you read this book and, and go, wow, all of this was accomplished without smoke machines and, and video screens and guitars or 21st century gimmicks, or likewise, to even apply it to ourselves, without organs and pews and robes and pianos, then you would be absolutely correct. Other words, those are not the essential methods of building the church. The book of Acts helps us and gives us much clarity to what the church really is and what the church ought to be doing and what God is doing and will do in and through his church. Third, let me give you a, a lesson of this book. What will be gained? I want you to, to go into this study with excitement and momentum, to, to really be praying about it, to really be praying for yourself, that you would apply these truths and apply the things that will be, be taught and learned through it because it is so absolutely needed. And I think the greatest benefit that you will gain, the thing that we greatly need to gain is is essentially one thing, one thing with several applications of it. And that one thing is this. We need kingdom vision. Kingdom vision. What do I mean by that? Well, look at what it says in verse three. It says that Jesus presented himself, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Luke is saying, what was the topic of discussion in the last 40 days? The very last thing, the very last teaching topic that Jesus wanted to, to make sure that he conveyed. Because it's, it's probably an important one, isn't it? These last earthly instructions before he left, well, Luke tells us. It was about the kingdom of God. And no doubt you think, like I think, well, man, I would have loved to be a part of those discussions, part of that teaching, and I completely agree. But we are not ignorant of them either. In other words, through the acts of the apostles, we see them living out kingdom theology that Jesus taught. What do I mean by that? Well, what will we see throughout this book? We will see kingdom expansion. How far should the kingdom expand? Well, you know that answer, don't you? You sang about it earlier. Jesus shall reign wherever the sun does its successive journeys run. His kingdom shall stretch from shore to shore. And how long shall it last? Till moons shall wax and wane no more. You see, Isaac Watts got it, didn't he? He was probably reading the book of Acts when he wrote that song, that Jesus' kingdom will and must encompass the entirety of the earth and will, so, will do so until the end of days. 
That is the, the kingdom vision of global expansion that we need. As Habakkuk 2.14 says, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Do you hear what Habakkuk is seeing? The knowledge of, of God Almighty needs to cover the entirety of this earth. And oftentimes in our skepticism, in our skepticism, my skepticism, we think, well, yeah, I know it says that, but that's not going to happen. And maybe it won't. At least maybe it won't in our lifetime. But we ought to pray. We ought to work. We ought to live. We ought to give like it would. Believing the promises of God. And to do so, to, to have that type of of kingdom expansion. We need to have another lesson from this book that we ought to, to learn, and that is kingdom boldness. And we'll see this more in depth next week, but when Jesus ascended, we can fast in our creeds. And when he did so, he was seated at the right hand of God the Father. You remember when we say that as a part of our confession, our creed. In other words, he was ascended to heaven to be seated as the king of kings. So let me ask. Has anyone unseated him? Has he lost any elections? Has he been replaced? Has he been usurped? Has he been dethroned? Has he been uncrowned? No? You sure? Then live like it. Live like it. If he is still the King of kings and Lord of lords, then we ought to live entirely different. And that's what's incredible about this book. What I'm so excited about it is that there is a group of men and women that live like Christ is truly exultant and living as the King of kings. That our God is triumphant in heaven and upon earth and he has not lost control. He has not lost power. He's still at work building and establishing his kingdom. Isn't that what we pray? Isn't that what the Lord taught us to pray in the Lord's Prayer? Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Do we actually believe those words when we pray them? That doesn't mean that there's a triumphalism or a call for a Christian crusade or even a Christian nation. I must be reminded that this is a spiritual kingdom. It's not an earthly one. And we need not equate the two. Christ's kingdom is very different than our kingdom. But what we see in the book of Acts is in the midst of this kingdom expansion, we see and, and we'll read about a lot of persecution, a lot of suffering, even martyrdom, people losing their life for the sake of Christ. People might read that and say, kingdom? That's a, a weak kingdom, if that's the case. Maybe in the earthly sense it is. But in the spiritual sense, don't we learn that his power is made perfect in what? In our weakness. Doesn't the cross demonstrate that the, the greatest work of redemption is done in what seems to be the greatest moment of weakness? So much so that Paul says that if I am weak, then I am strong. Kingdom 
boldness. Understand this. When I say kingdom boldness, kingdom boldness does not come from us being strong or us being bold. In other words, it's quite the opposite. It's actually admitting that we are weak and needy. Because when we admit that, then the Holy Spirit can use us and will be pleased to do so, even for mighty and great things. As we begin this book, I go back to, to where we began. Should we be excited or should we be afraid? The answer is yes. Excited that the resurrected Lord, through the power of the Holy Spirit, would allow us to be such a part of a, a work like this, this kingdom building, this kingdom expansion work. And at the same time, we should have a healthy amount of fear. Why? Because this book will stretch us in uncomfortable ways. The Spirit always does. And we should even pray that he would. Why? Because he is worthy. He is worthy of our life and of our all. Hopefully I don't need to say this, but I will. I hope you'll block off your your Sunday mornings and say to the Lord, unless providentially hindered, Lord, I will be there. Why? Because I need this kingdom vision. I need this kingdom expansion to grow in, in me, to grow in us, and that it would go to the very ends of the earth. Would you join me in that prayer even now? Our gracious God and heavenly Father, Lord, we we do come to you with with fear and trepidation. Lord, because we love our comforts. We love being secure. And what this book does, what your Holy Spirit does is propels us forward and moves us sometimes in uncomfortable ways be a part of something that is much bigger, much more grand, much more glorious than, than our kingdom vision would ever be. And so, Lord, would we gain the perspective that the, that the apostles had and, and even more so that you have for us and, and for the life of this church and the life of the, the big C church around the world? And, Lord, would you be pleased to, to use this gathering of believers, and to do a mighty work in and through us. We would ask that you would truly fill us with the Holy Spirit and that you would send us forth to to minister and to be ministers of your good news and your gospel. And we do so, O Lord, through service and even through suffering for the sake of Christ, for the good of the body, for the good of our brothers and sisters, for the good of the world, O Lord all for your glory's sake. Lord, in the midst of it, would we be so pleased and so delighted that you would use the likes of us to be a part of your kingdom expansion until you come, O Lord, and you place your feet upon this earth once again. Lord, would your people, would your servants, would those that are part of your kingdom be about your work doing what you have called us to do. Lord, would you help us and enable us, we pray. We pray this in Christ, our Savior's name. Amen.